Chapter Four of the Giant's Robe by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. Malakoff Terrace. After parting from Vincent at the end of Rotten Row, Mark Ashburn continued his walk alone through Kensington High Street and onwards until he came to one of those quiet streets which serve as a sort of backwater to the main stream of traffic and turning down this it was not long before he reached a row of small three-storey houses with their lower parts cased in stucco but the rest allowed to remain in the original yellow-brown brick which time had mellowed to a pleasant warm tone malakoff terrace as the place had been christened and the title was a tolerable index of its date was rather less depressing in appearance than many of its more modern neighbours with their dismal monotony and pretentiousness it faced a well-kept enclosure with trim lawns and beds and across the compact laurel hedges in the little front gardens a curious passer-by might catch glimpses of various interiors which in nearly every case left him with an impression of cosy comfort the outline of the terrace was broken here and there by little verandas protecting the shallow balconies and painted a deep indian red or sap green which in summer time were gay with flowers and creepers and one seldom passed there then on warm and drowsy afternoons without undergoing a well-sustained fire from quite a masked battery of pianos served from behind the fluttering white curtains at most of the long open windows on the first floor even in winter and at night the terrace was cheerful with its variety of striped and coloured blinds and curtains at the illuminated windows and where blinds and curtains were undrawn and the little front rooms left unlighted the firelight flickering within on shining bookcases and picture frames was no less pleasantly suggestive still in every neighbourhood there will always be some houses whose exteriors are severely unattractive without being poverty-stricken they seem to belong to people indifferent to all but the absolutely essential and incapable of surrounding themselves with any of the characteristic contrivances that most homes which are more than mere lodgings amass almost unconsciously it was before a house of this latter kind that mark stopped a house with nothing in the shape of a veranda to relieve its formality behind its front railings there were no trim laurel bushes only an uncomfortable bed of equal parts of mould and broken red tiles in which a withered juniper was dying hard at the windows were no bright curtain folds or hanging baskets of trailing fern to give a touch of colour but dusty wire blinds and hangings of a faded drab it was not a boarding-house but the home in which mark ashburn lived with his family who if they were not precisely gay were as respectable as any in the terrace which is better in some respects than mere gaiety he found them all sitting down to dinner in the back parlour a square little room with a grey paper of a large and hideous design his mother a stout lady with a frosty complexion a cold grey eye and an injured expression about the mouth and brow was serving out soup with a touch of the relieving officer in her manner opposite to her was her husband a mild little man in habitually low spirits and the rest of the family mark's two sisters martha and trixie and his younger brother cuthbert were in their respective places 
Mrs. Ashburn looked up severely as he came in. "'You are late again, Mark,' she said. "'While you are under this roof—Mrs. Ashburn was fond of referring to the roof—your father and I expect you to conform to the rules of the house.' "'Well, you see, mother,' explained Mark, sitting down and unfolding his napkin, "'it was a fine afternoon, so I thought I would walk home with a friend.' "'There is a time for walking home with a friend and a time for dinner,' observed his mother, with the air of quoting something scriptural. "'And I've mixed them, mother? So I have. I'm sorry, and I won't do it again. There, will that do? Make haste and eat your soup, Mark, and don't keep us all waiting for you.' Mrs. Ashburn had never quite realised that her family had grown up. She still talked to Mark as she had done when he was a careless schoolboy at St. Peter's. She still tried to enforce little moral lessons and even petty restrictions upon her family generally, and though she had been long reduced to blank cartridges, it worried them. The ideal family circle, on reassembling at the close of the day, celebrate their reunion with an increasing flow of lively conversation. Those who have been out into the great world describe their personal experiences, and the scenes, tragic or humorous, which they have severally witnessed during the day, and when these are exhausted, the female members take up the tale and relate the humbler incidents of domestic life, and so the hours pass till bedtime. Such circles are, in all sincerity, to be congratulated, but it is to be feared that in the majority of cases the conversation of a family whose members meet every day is apt among themselves to become frightfully monosyllabic. It was certainly so with the Ashburns. Mark and Trixie sometimes felt the silences too oppressive to be borne, and made desperate attempts at establishing a general discussion on something or anything. But it was difficult to select a topic that could not be brought down by an axiom from Mrs. Ashburn, which disposed of the whole subject in very early infancy. Cuthbert generally came back from the office tired and somewhat sulky. Martha's temper was not to be depended upon of an evening, and Mr. Ashburn himself rarely contributed more than a heavy sigh to the common stock of conversation. Under these circumstances, it will be readily believed that Mark's evenings at home were by no means brilliant. He sometimes wondered himself why he had borne them so long, and if he had been able to procure comfortable lodgings at as cheap a rate as it cost him to live at home, he would probably have taken an early opportunity of bursting the bonds of the family dullness. But his salary was not large, his habits were expensive, and he stayed on. The beginning of this particular evening did not promise any marked increase in the general liveliness. Mrs. Ashburn announced lugubriously, to all whom it might concern, that she had eaten no lunch. Martha mentioned that a Miss Hornblower had called that afternoon, which produced no sensation, though Cuthbert seemed, for a moment, inclined to ask who Miss Hornblower might happen to be, till he remembered in time that he really did not care, and saved himself the trouble. Then Trixie made a well-meant but rather too obvious effort to allure him to talk by an inquiry, which had become something of a formula, whether he had seen anyone that day, to which Cuthbert replied that he had noticed one or two people hanging about the city, and Martha observed that she was glad to see he still kept up his jokes, moving him to confess sardonically that he knew he was a funny dog, but when he saw them all, and particularly Martha, 
rollicking round him, he could not help bubbling over with merriment himself. Mrs. Ashburn caught the reply and said severely, "'I do not think, Cuthbert, that either I or your father have ever set you the example of rollicking, as you call it, at this table. Decent mirth and a cheerful tone of conversation we have always encouraged. I don't know why you should receive a mother's remarks with laughter. It is not respectful of you, Cuthbert, I must say.' Mrs. Ashburn would probably have proceeded to further defend herself and family from the charge of rollicking, and to draw uncomplimentary parallels from the proverbs between the laughter of certain persons and the crackling of thorns under a pot, when a timely diversion was effected by a sounding knock at the little front door. The maid put down the dish she was handing and vanished, after which there were sounds of a large body entering the passage, and a loud voice exclaiming, all in hey and at dinner are they very well my dear tell em i'm here i know my way in it's uncle solomon went round the table they refrained from any outward expression of joy because they were naturally a quiet family well said mrs ashburn who seemed to put her own construction on this reserve and i'm sure if there is any table at which my only brother solomon should be a welcome guest it's this table quite so my dear quite so said mr ashburn hastily he was here last week but we're all glad to see him at any time i'm sure i hope so indeed go in trixie and help your uncle off with his coat for there were snorting and puffing signs from the next room as if their relative were in difficulties but before trixie could rise the voice was heard again that's it anne thank ye you're called anne aren't you i thought so and how's the baker anne wasn't it the baker i caught down the airy now wasn't it eh and then a large red-faced person came in with a puffy important mouth a fringe of whiskers meeting under his chin and what trixie and speaking privately of her relative's personal appearance described as little piggy eyes which had however a twinkle of a rather primitive kind of humour in them Solomon Lightowler was a brother of Mrs. Ashburn's, a retired businessman who had amassed a considerable fortune in the hardware trade. He was a widower and without children, and it was he who, fired with the ambition of placing a nephew in the Indian civil service as a rising monument to his uncle's perception, had sent Mark to the crammers. For Mr. Ashburn's position in the Inland Revenue Office would scarcely have warranted such an outlay mark's performances at his first examination as has been said had not been calculated to encourage his uncle's hopes but the latter had been slightly mollified by his nephew's spirit in carrying off the cambridge scholarship soon afterwards and with the idea of having one more attempt to see his money back mr lightowler had consented to keep him for the necessary time at the university when that experiment also had ended in disaster uncle solomon seemed at one time to have given him up in disgust only reserving himself as the sole value for his money the liberty of reproach and mark was of opinion that he had already gone far towards recouping himself in this respect alone ha phew you're very hot in here he remarked as an agreeable opening he felt himself rich enough to be able to remark on other people's atmospheres but cuthbert expressed a sotto voce wish 
that his uncle were exposed to an even higher temperature we can't all live in country houses solomon said his sister and a small room soon gets warm to any one coming in from the cold air warm said mr lightowler with a snort i should think you must all of you be fired like a set of pots i don't care where i sit so long as i'm well away from the fire i'll come by you trixie eh you'll take care of your uncle won't you trixie was a handsome girl of about eighteen with abundant auburn hair which was never quite in good order and pretty hands of which most girls would have been more careful she had developed a limp taste for art of late finding drawing outlines at an art school less irksome than assisting in the housekeeping at home uncle solomon always alarmed her because she never knew what he would say next but as it was a family rule to be civil to him she made room for him with great apparent alacrity and how are you all boys and girls eh asked uncle solomon when he was comfortably seated mark you've got fuller in the waist of late you don't take half enough exercise cuthbert lad you're looking very sallow under the eyes smoking in late hours that's the way with all the young men nowadays why don't you talk to him eh matthew i should if he was a boy of mine well martha has any nice young man asked you to name a day yet he's a long time coming forward martha that nice young man why let me see jane she must be getting on now for she was born in the year fifty-four wasn't it for it was it was the war time i remember and you wanted her christened alma but i said an uncommon name is all very well if she grows up good-looking but if she's plain it only sounds ridiculous so very fortunately as things turned out you had her christened martha there's nothing to bite your lips over my dear no one blames you for it we can't all be born handsome it's trixie here who gets all the love-letters isn't it trixie ah i thought i could see a blush if i looked who is it now trixie and where do we meet him and when is the wedding come tell your old uncle don't put such nonsense into the child's head solomon said his sister in a slightly scandalized tone that would be cold sir newcastle with a vengeance he chuckled but you mustn't mind my going on that's my way if people don't like it i can't help it but i always speak right out which is the reason we love him came in a stage aside from cuthbert who took advantage of a slight deafness in one of his uncle's ears well mr schoolmaster said the latter working round to mark again and how are you getting on if you'd worked harder at college and done me credit you'd a been a feller of your college or a judge in an indian court by this time instead of birching naughty little boys it's a detail said mark but i don't interfere in that department well you are young to be trusted with the birch i'm glad they look at things that way if you're satisfied with yourself i suppose i ought to be though i did look forward once to seeing a nephew of mine famous you've had all your fame at cambridge with your papers and your poems and your college skits a nice snug little fame all to yourself martha tittered acidly at this light badinage and it brought a pained look into trixie's large brown eyes who thought it was a shame that poor mark should never be allowed to hear the last of his cambridge fiasco even mrs ashburn seemed anxious to shield mark 
"'Ah, Solomon,' she said, "'Mark sees his folly now. "'He knows how wrong he was to spend his time in idle scribbling to amuse thoughtless young men, "'when he ought to have studied hard and shown his gratitude to you for all you have done for him.' "'Well, I've been a good friend to him, Jane, and I could have been a better if he'd proved deserving. "'I'm not one to grudge any expense, and if I thought, even now, that he'd really given up his scribbling—' "'Mark thought it prudent to equivocate. "'Even if I wished to write, uncle,' he said, "'what with my schoolwork, and what with reading for the bar, I should not have much time for it. "'But mother is right. I do see my folly now.' "'This pleased Uncle Solomon.' who still clung to the fragments of his belief in Mark's ability, and had been gratified upon his joining one of the inns of court by the prospect of having a nephew who at least would have the title of barrister. He relaxed at once. "'Well, well, let bygones be bygones. You may be a credit to me yet. And now I think of it, come down and stay Sunday at the Woodbine soon, will you? It'll be a rest for you, and I want you to see some of that umpage's goings-on at the church.' Uncle Solomon not unfrequently dropped an H, but with a deliberation that seemed to say that he was quite aware it was there, but did not consider it advisable to recognise it just then. "'He's quite got round the vicar, made him have flowers, and a great brass cross and candles on the communion table, and dumpage all the time a fellow with no more religion inside him than—' Here he looked round the table for a comparison. "'And then that jugger!' He talked the vicar into getting him little bags for collections now, all because he was jealous at the clerk's putting the plate inside my pew regular for me to hold. It isn't that I care about holding a plate, but to see umpage smirking round with one of them red velvet bags make me downright sick. They'll drive me to go over and be a Baptist one of these fine days. "'You don't like Mr. Humpage, do you, Uncle?' said Trixie. "'Umpage and me are not friendly, though contiguous,' said he. "'But as for liking, I neither like nor dislike the man. "'We hold no intercourse, beyond looking the other way in church "'and having words across the fence when his fowls break through into my garden. "'He won't have the whole scene to, so I shall get it done myself "'and send the bill to him. That's what I shall do. "'A letter for you, Matthew? Read away, don't mind me.' "'For the maid to come in, meanwhile, with a letter— which Matthew Ashburn opened and began to read at his permission. Presently he rubbed his forehead perplexedly. "'I can't make head or tail of it,' he said feebly. "'I don't know who they are, or what they write all this to me for.' "'And it over to me, Matthew. Let's see if I can make it any plainer for you,' said his brother-in-law, persuaded that to his powerful mind few things could long remain a mystery. He took the letter solemnly, settled his double eyeglasses well down on his broad nose, coughed importantly, and began to read. "'Dear sir,' he began in a tone of expounding wisdom. "'Well, that's straightforward enough. "'Dear sir, we have given our best consideration to the—' "'Hey!' Here his face began to grow less confident. "'The sweet—what?' "'Ah, sweet bells—' "'Sweet bells jangle.' "'What have you been jangling your bells about, eh, Matthew?' "'I think they're mad,' said poor Mr. Ashburn. "'The bells in this house are all right, I think, my dear.' "'I'm not aware that any of them are out of order. "'They rehung the bell in the area the other day. "'It's some mistake,' said Mrs. Ashburn. "'Which,' continued Uncle Solomon, 
you have been good enough to submit to us pretty good that for a bellanger hey eh? we regret however to say that we do not find ourselves in a position to make any overtures to you in the matter well he said though not very confidently you've been writing to your landlord about the fixtures and these are his lawyers writing back isn't that it now what should i write to him for said mr ashburn that's not it solomon go on it gets worse by and by your one fair daughter also hello trixie we find ourselves compelled to decline although with more reluctance but in spite of some considerable merits there is a slight roughness why her complexion's clear enough together with a certain immaturity and total lack of form and motive you are giddy you know trixie i always told you so which are in our opinion sufficient to prevent us from making any proposals to you in the matter uncle solomon laid down the letter at this point and looked around open-mouthed thought i could make out most things he said but this is rather beyond me i must say here are these people what's their names leadbitter and gandy who i take it are in the gas-fitting and decorating line writing to say in the same breath that they can't come and see to your bells and that they don't want to marry your daughter who asks them you ain't come down so low in the world to go and offer Trixie to a gas-fitter i should hope matthew and yet what else does it mean tell me that and i'll thank you don't ask me said the unhappy father they're perfect strangers Trixie, you know nothing about it i hope said mrs ashburn rather suspiciously no ma dear said Trixie, but i don't want to marry either mr leadbitter or mr gandy the situation had become too much for mark at first he had hoped that by holding his tongue he might escape being detected while the rejection of both the novels from which he had hoped so much was a heavy blow which he felt he could scarcely bear in public but they seemed so determined to sift the matter to the end that he decided to enlighten them at once since it must be only a question of time but his voice was choked and his face crimson as he said i think perhaps i can explain it you they all cried while uncle solomon added something about young men having grown cleverer since his young days yes that letter is addressed to me m ashburn you see stands for mark not matthew it's from from a firm of publishers said the unlucky mark speaking very hoarsely i sent them two novels of mine one was called one fair daughter and the other sweet bells jangled and they they won't take them that's all there was a sensation as reporters say at this announcement martha gave a sour little laugh of disgust cuthbert looked as if he thought a good deal which brotherly feeling forbade him to put in words but trixie tried to take mark's hand under the table he shrank from all sympathy however at such a moment and shook her off impatiently and all she could do was to keep her eyes in pity from his face mrs ashburn gave a tragic groan and shook her head to her a young man who was capable of writing novels was lost she had a wholesome horror of all fiction having come from a race of dissenters of the strict old-fashioned class whose prejudices her hard dull nature had retained in all their strength 
her husband without any very clear views of his own thought as she did as soon as he knew her opinions and they all left it to mr lightowler to interpret the evident sense of the house he expanded himself imposingly calling up his bitterest powers of satire to do justice to the occasion so that's all is it he said ah and quite enough too i should think so it was the bells on your cap that were jingling all the time since you put it in that pleasant way said mark i suppose it was and that's how you've been studying for the bar of evenings this is the way you've overcome your fondness for scribbling nonsense i spent all the money i've laid out on you it was a way of his to talk as if mark had been a building estate i've given you a good education all to have you writing novels and get em returned with thanks you might have done that much without going to college every writer of any note has had novels declined at some time said mark well said uncle solomon ponderously if that's all you've made a capital start you can set up as a big literary pot at once you can with a brace of em i hope you're satisfied with all this jane i'm sure it's no use saying anything she said but it's a bad return after all your kindness to him a return with thanks put in cuthbert who was not without some enjoyment of mark's discomfiture he had long had a certain contempt for his elder brother as a much overrated man and he felt with perfect justice that had fortune made him his uncle's favourite he had brains which would have enabled him to succeed where mark had failed but he had been obliged to leave school early for a city office which had gone some way towards souring him there's an old latin proverb said mr ashburn with a feeling that it was his turn an old latin proverb nec suetonius ultra crepitam no excuse me you haven't quite got it right matthew said his brother-in-law patronizingly you're very near it though it runs if i don't make a mistake ne plus ultra sutorius not suetonius he was a roman emperor crepitam a favourite remark of the poet cicero cobbler stick to your last as we have it more neatly but your father's right on the main point mark i don't say you need stick to the schoolmastering unless you choose i'll see you started at the bar i came this very evening to have a talk with you on that but what do you want to go and lower yourself by literature for there's a literary man down at our place a poor fellow that writes for the chigbourne and lamford gazette and gets my gardener to let him take the measure of my gooseberries he's got a hat on him my scarecrow wouldn't be seen in that's what you'll come to there's some difference said mark getting roused between the reporter of a country paper and a novelist there's a difference between you and him retorted his uncle he gets what he writes put in and paid so much a line for you don't that's all the difference i can see but when the books are accepted they will be paid for said mark and well paid for too i always thought that dog in the shadow must have been a puppy and now i know it said his uncle irritably now look here mark let's have no more nonsense about it i said i came here to have a talk with you and though things are not what i expected have it i will when i saw you last i thought you were trying to raise yourself by your own efforts and studying law and i said to myself i'll give him another chance it seems now that was all talk but i'll give you the chance for all that if you'd like to take it well and good 
if not i've done with you this time once for all you go on and work hard at this law till you've served your time out or keep your terms or whatever they call it and when you get called you can give them notice to quit at your school i'll pay your fees and see you started in chambers till you're able to run alone only and mind this no more of your scribbling drop that literary rubbish once for all and i stand by you go on at it and i leave you to go to the dogs your own way that's my offer and i mean it there are few things so unpleasantly corrective to one's self-esteem as a letter of rejection such as had come to mark the refusal of the school committee was insignificant in comparison only those who have yielded to a subtle temptation to submit manuscript to an editor or a publisher's reader and have seen it return in dishonour can quite realise the dull anguish of it the wild impotent rebellion that follows and the stunned sense that all one's ideas will have somehow to be readjusted perhaps an artist whose pictures are not hung feels something of it but there one's wounded vanity can more easily find salves mark felt the blow very keenly for weeks he had been building hopes on these unfortunate manuscripts of his he had sent both to a firm under whose auspices he was particularly anxious to come before the world in the hope that one at least would find favour with them and now the two had been unequivocally declined for a moment his confidence in himself was shaken and he almost accepted the verdict and yet he hesitated still the publisher might be wrong he had heard of books riding out several such storms and sailing in triumphantly at last there was carlyle there was charlotte bronte and other instances occurred to him and he longed for speedy fame and the law was a long avenue to it you hear what your uncle says said his mother surely you won't refuse a chance like this yes he will said martha mark would rather write novels than work wouldn't you mark it must be so amusing to write things which will never be read i'm sure leave mark alone martha said trixie it's a shame it is i don't know why you should all be down on me like this said mark there's nothing positively immoral in writing books at least when it never goes any further but i dare say you're right and i believe you mean to be kind at any rate uncle i'll take your offer i'll read steadily and get called and see if i'm good for anything at the bar since it seems i'm good for nothing else and you'll give up the writing eh said his uncle oh yes said mark irritably anything you please i'm a reformed character i'll take the pledge to abstain from ink in all forms if you like it was not a very gracious way of accepting what was by no means an unhandsome offer but he was jarred and worried and scarcely knew what he said mr lightowler was not sensitive and was too satisfied at having gained his object to cavil at mark's manner of yielding very well that's settled he said i'm glad you've come to your senses i'm sure we'll have you on the woolsack yet and we'll say no more about the other business and now said mark with a forced smile i think i'll say good-night i'll go and attack the law-books while i'm in the humour for them upstairs in his room he got out his few elementary text-books and began to read with a sort of sullen determination but he had not gone very far in the descent of an estate tale before he shut the book up in a passion i can't read to-night he said savagely it isn't easy to hug my chains all at once 
it will be a long time before i come out strong on estates tale if holroyd who says he likes the jargon can't get a living by it there's not much hope for me i loathe it i'm sure i had the chance with those books of mine too but that's all over i must burn them i suppose who's there for there was a tap at the door it's me mark trixie let me in mark rose and opened the door to trixie in a loose morning wrapper mark i'm so sorry dear she said softly sorry you ought to rejoice trixie said mark with a bitter laugh i'm a brand from the burning a repentant novelist i've seen my errors and am going to turn lord chancellor you mustn't be angry with them said trixie dear ma is very strict but then she is so anxious to see you make a living mark and you know they don't give you very much at st peter's and martha and cuthbert can't help saying disagreeable things don't you think perhaps she added timidly that it's better for you to give up thinking about writing any more well i've done it trixie at any rate i'm not so bad as that fellow delobel in fromont with his je n'ai pas le droit de renoncer au théâtre am i i've renounced my stage i'm a good little boy and won't make a mess with nasty ink and pens any more when i get those confounded books back they shall go into the fire by jove they shall no mark don't it will be such a pity cried trixie i'm sure they were beautifully written quite as well as some that get printed i wish you could write novels and be lord chancellor too mark bring out acts in three volumes and edit judicature rules in fancy covers for railway reading it would be very nice trixie wouldn't it but i'm afraid it wouldn't do even if i wrote them in secret under the woolsack if i write anything now it must be a smart spicy quarto on bankruptcy or a rattling digest on the law of settlement and highways my fictions will be all legal ones i know you will do your best said trixie simply mark dreamed that night much as any other disappointed literary aspirants have dreamed before him that a second letter had come from the publishers stating that they had reconsidered their decision and offering repentantly to publish both novels on fabulous terms he was just rushing to call trixie and tell her the good news when the dream faded and he awoke to the consciousness of his very different circumstances literature had jilted him the law was to be his mistress henceforth a bony and parchment-filled inamorata with a horsehair wig and he thought of the task of wooing her with a shudder End of chapter four